It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Three, two, one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer, Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon, Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on Welcome the phone. Welcome in, everybody, episode three. 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 It is Wednesday morning, December 2nd, 2020. I am recording shortly after that Champions Classic. I, I do this every year. Usually this event is the start of the college basketball season. Thought it would be fun to do it after the Champions Classic, the second episode this week. Instead, we got two abominable games. Uh, Kansas-Kentucky was just a complete disaster. Kansas holding on for a win in a game that was best described as probably neither team deserved to lo- to win. Excuse me. I guess you could argue that Kansas deserved to lose less, so we'll We'll talk about that one. We'll talk about Michigan State Duke. Duke looked just as bad as Kansas and Kentucky. Michigan State really the only redeeming team coming out of this event. Talk about some of the a quick recap of the other games from the day. Preview the Jimmy V Classic, which is obviously a great event on Wednesday. Baylor, uh, West Virginia, Gonzaga, and Illinois. Four teams that I think are legitimate uh, Final Four contenders. And we'll get out of here uh, talking a little bit about the college football playoff selection committee show. And of course, this crazy Kirk Herbstreet story uh, that he believes that Michigan may actually opt out of the Big Ten championship game uh, but next week just for the simple fact that it would actually screw Ohio State. They, Excuse me, Michigan would opt out of the Ohio State game. So Ohio State cannot get in the Big Ten championship game. So a lot to get to. Like I said, it's 1 a.m. Eastern, not a lot of prep time. I'm jumping right into it a lot of notes so let's get started before we do quick reminder if you're not subscribed please make sure to do so uh really i think fun time of year for this show where we bounce a lot between the college football and college basketball scene obviously again today heavy college basketball but we'll get into football especially as we head towards the weekend and of course uh you know into the into what is the meat of the college football playoff uh, hype and excitement of the next couple weeks. So make sure that you're subscribed. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. And of course, if you're not following, go ahead and make sure to follow on all the social media platforms at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter. Uh, and of course, if you have any questions for the show, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. Uh, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. And with that said, people. 
There is no more time to waste because let's be honest, it is past your bedtime, it is past my bedtime, uh, and there is so much to get into from a busy day of college hoops. If you're fortunate enough to work from home right now, and by the way, I haven't said this in a while, but I hope everybody is doing well given the current climate and circumstances that we're in, Uh, but if you are fortunate enough to be working from home, great day of college hoops, started at about 1.30 Eastern with the Indiana-Texas game, and basically went nonstop until after midnight with Kentucky Kansas and we will actually start with where the day ended with Kentucky Kansas Uh, and yeah it wasn't pretty as I said I don't know that either team deserved to win Kansas does in fact win 65-62 and like I said off the top I guess you could argue that they deserve to lose less than Kentucky did a very frustrating game for Kentucky And I think with the two games on Tuesday night, what I'm going to do is start with the losing team because to me, sometimes the victor is the better story, but the loser, the victor is the better headline, but the loser is the better story, I should say. And so let's start with the loser in game one. That is Kentucky. Um, And I, I don't know what to say. I mean, this was a almost a carbon copy of what happened on Sunday afternoon against Richmond. We obviously talked about it on Monday's show, but it's an incredibly frustrating time for Kentucky basketball fans. It's an incredibly frustrating time for the players in that locker room, and it's a frustrating time for John Calipari. You fall to one and two, um, and really more so even than the Richmond game, this Kansas game was there for the taking, man. I mean, it's one thing to just have a bad second half, and I don't, I'm not making excuses for Kentucky because it was beyond bad, but you put that aside, you say, okay, we had one bad half, what can we learn from this game? And then you take it to the next game in Kansas, and for about, you know, a, a, a probably 25 minutes, you feel really good that this team really has evolved. For people who watched the game, Kentucky largely dominated the first half. They were up as much as 17 to 5 at one point and as much by six as much as 16 points with about 5 minutes to go in the first half. And really everything that went wrong on Sunday, it seemed as though it was fixed. The defensive energy was there. There was structure on the offense. You're getting good shots. You're getting the ball down low to Olivier Saar, the star transfer. Um, you know, again, the defense is phenomenal. The energy in the building, you could hear the Kentucky guys cheering on the sidelines, not as obnoxiously as Duke, by the way, which we're going to get into in a minute. And everything's going good. Um, and then, unfortunately, halftime comes and the same exact thing happens that happened with Richmond. All of a sudden, you get out of halftime. Kentucky starts to slip a little bit before halftime, but is still largely in control. And fortunately for them, Kansas was not able to capitalize on their sluggish start to the second half. If Kansas had played, I think, even half decent, they would have taken the lead earlier and run away with this thing. Uh, Instead, Kentucky is able to kind of scrap and claw to stay in the game, But the second half was largely exactly what you saw from the Richmond game a few nights ago. Um, You get to the second half, and it gets really sloppy on offense. You stop running plays. You over-dribble. You take bad shots. I mean, no disrespect to the kid, but Terrence Clark, the star freshman, is just jacking up weird shots at weird times too early in the shot clock. And really, it was just a reflection 
of, again, everything that happened on Sunday coming back to fruition. Now, I know this is a young team. I know they're getting thrown into the fire because of the fact that there are really no out-of-conference games against easy opposition. You play Moorhead State, and then you immediately jump into Richmond, Kansas, and from here on out, Kentucky has only Power 5 teams left on the schedule. But man, it's not as though you just got beat by a clearly superior team on Mon on Tuesday night. Instead, it is self-inflicted wounds. It is an inability to play smart basketball. And I do understand the frustration of a Kentucky fan. The very simple facts that you need to know about Kentucky right now. If you're not a Kentucky fan and you're listening to this, first of all, shout out to you. I know I'm going deep on Kentucky, but they're the most interesting story in college basketball right now. They're one and two. They've lost two games to two really good teams, but at, you know Kentucky's no different than Duke basketball or Kansas basketball or frankly Gonzaga. You're expected to win every game, and so when you fall to one and two, people are going to raise questions. And if I can explain what's wrong uh, in two simple stats, I'm just going to go ahead and do it. Like I said a minute ago, you get to the second half, you stop running offense, you stop doing the basic things, you stop making crisp passes, you stop uh, taking uh, 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 good looks at the basket rather than you force jump shots instead, and if there's two stats that reflect it, it's this. In the last two games, which again, almost mirror each other identically for people who did not watch them, Kentucky in the last two games, 13 assists, 36 turnovers. Not great at math, but that's what? Almost four to one, three to one. It's almost three to one to three assist to turnovers. That's a disaster, okay? Secondly, you are three for 21 from three-point land. And I understand, you know, everyone has a good game, a bad game, whatever. You're not going to beat anyone. Forget Richmond being good. Is Kansas good? You're not beating the worst teams in the SEC if you can't be better than 3-4-21 from three and you can't do a better job of distributing the ball and handling the ball uh, rather than turning the ball over 36 times in two games with only 13 uh, assists to show for it. And listen, I understand people want to be critical of John Calipari, and they should be, but I thought it was interesting he said exactly that at halftime. At halftime, Kentucky had the lead, and he even said, we're not sharing the ball well enough. We're not doing enough. We're not passing the ball around enough. Um, and so, again, I think you got to blame the coaching staff. I'm not saying don't blame the coaching staff, but at a certain point, these guys, I understand they're freshmen. Play smarter. You got to be a basketball player. You can't be forcing bad shots. You can't be over dribbling. You can't be dribbling with your head down. You can't be doing the things that Kentucky is doing. Um, so, in terms of broader picture stuff. First of all, I should say before I even go any further, there were some positive signs for Kentucky. I mean, the positive signs were that this kid Isaiah Jackson, freshman, he's considered the third, fourth, fifth best recruit in this class. Um, maybe not the fifth, but maybe the third best recruit in this class behind BJ Boston, Brandon Boston, and, and Terrence Clark. This kid's been unbelievable. 12 rebounds, eight blocks, a total difference maker, a total game changer, a total energy guy, and I think, frankly, has been Kentucky's best player over the first two games, or first three games. Um, Davion Mintz, transfer from Creighton, for people who do not know, a fifth-year guy. He was brought in to play off the ball and shoot threes and not be a star and be a role player, and that's exactly what he's doing. 12 points on um, 12 points on Tuesday night, a big three late, two for five from three. The rest of his team, by the way, one for 16 from three. 
Uh, I thought that Jacob Toppin, another transfer, Obi Toppin's brother played well. Here is the issue, though. Those guys were all supposed to be role players. Jacob Toppin wasn't even supposed to be eligible to play this year. And so the bigger issue is that you're getting exactly what you want from your role players. It's the guys that you thought were going to be stars that are not living up to their end of the bargain. And before we go forward, I just want to make it abundantly clear. Um, I always say it on this podcast is I try not to criticize college athletes too much because they are amateurs and they're doing their best and they're not paid. And once you get paid, it's a different deal. But what I would also say You go to Kentucky to be under a spotlight, to be under a microscope, to be great, to show the world how good you are at basketball. And so I have to say that the guys that are expected to carry this team so far have not lived up to their end of the bargain. Um, Olivier Saar, transfer from Wake Forest. I believed, I still believe, that he was the best transfer in college basketball last last offseason. He's been great when he's on the court, but he gets in too much foul trouble. And I know a Kentucky fan would say a couple of them were cheapies. I get it. But you're a veteran. You have to be smarter. Some of them weren't cheapies. Some of them were lazy. Some of them were sloppy. You got to be better. Uh, Terrence Clark, I just mentioned it. Five-star, McDonald's All-American, one and done, lottery pick in all the mock drafts, over dribbles, bad jump shot, doesn't create for others. Not saying he's a bad kid, a bad person, doesn't, you know, like, like, but when you're on the court, when you're on the stage, you're either delivering or you're not. And right now, he is not playing up to the recruiting hype. Same with BJ Boston, who actually did play pretty well today. But if you look at his season as a whole, he was considered to be one of the best shooters in high school basketball last year. He hasn't hit a single three-pointer. And so again, this isn't me tearing down these kids, but what it is saying is you come to Kentucky to be on one of the biggest stages in college basketball along with Duke, along with Carolina, along with Kansas, these are the biggest stages in college basketball, and that's why you come to Kentucky, to be great, to show the world how good you are, to show the world what you're capable of, and obviously it translates to the next level, and we saw that success with the NBA bubble. But with that said, these guys aren't living up to it right now, and so as far as this team is concerned, it's why it's disappointing, and I'll just say this. You know, people are going to criticize me. Well, Torres, you, you were the one that was hyping them up all, all offseason. And like, yeah, you're right, I was. But they also have two of the top 10 prospects in high school basketball coming in who, oh, by the way, this was a great class for high school basketball. And I understand, guys, I've been doing this long enough. I understand that these freshmen don't always live up to the hype, don't always step in and deliver from day one. I get that. I understand it. I talked about it on last podcast. But when you're when you have two top 10 recruits in a really good recruiting class, you expect a little bit more consistency, a little bit more I don't know what the right word is. Toughness isn't the right word. A little bit more basketball IQ in some cases, and you expect these guys to deliver. Right now they're not. Right now Olivier Sar can't stay on the floor, and that's the problem. I will say, you know, looking looking ahead, I think there's some big picture things, some little picture things that are both positive and negative. The negative is, like I said, this was not a vintage Kansas team. This game was there for the taking, and as I said, um, you know, it, it is easy to be, it is easy to to kind of say, well, you're young and you're going to get better. But guess what? The schedule doesn't get any easier. The schedule from this point on is um, the schedule from this point on is all Power Five teams. Going forward, you play Georgia Tech, Notre Dame, UCLA, and Louisville, 
and then you start the SEC play. So you don't have that normal schedule to kind of get you back on track and get you ready for the season ahead and all of those things that you normally do. People criticize John Calipari, and it's one thing he talked about at his press conference the other day. But, like, there's a reason that he schedules UAB and Eastern Kentucky and whomever, uh, and it's because of the fact that he has a young team every year that he needs to get them to figure things out and get them going. Um, I would say... Uh, if you're looking for some silver linings as opposed to the negative stuff, one, um, first of all, some of those teams just don't look as good as we thought they would be. Uh, Georgia Tech's a disaster. I think I talked about it on the last show, but Josh Pastner, who's my guy, decided to do contactless practices this offseason. In other words, no five-on-five, and Georgia Tech's really struggling. That's Kentucky's next opponent. Notre Dame got blown out by Michigan State the other day, uh, and UCLA doesn't look as good as expected. I think UCLA's going to get there, but are they going to get there in three weeks? I don't know. So to me, that is a silver lining. And then the other silver lining is there really is some positivity that can come out of all this. First of all, had my buddy uh, JC, listener to this show, he just tweeted at me, and he brings up a great point. Like, Kentucky uh, is shooting 9% from three-point land right now, okay? 9%. If, they're just, if they just shoot 20% from the field, 25% from the field, which is abysmal, they win this game, and they're 2-1, and one, and they're feeling a lot better, and it's not as much of a big deal. The, dom, uh, the, the guys down low, Olivier Saar and Isaiah Jackson are playing well. Davion Mintz is playing well off the ball. So there are positives going in, and it's little stuff that is fixable. That is, I, I, guess, I guess that's what I would say. Is, is I'm, again, I'm spitballing here off the top of my head. It's 1.15 Eastern time. I'm trying to just do this, react to the game. But what I would say is the stuff that needs to be fixed, for the most part, is fixable, Right. At some point, B.J. Boston is going to hit threes. At some point, you would hope that Olivier Saar can stay out of foul trouble. And if you get that, and if you get Terrence Clark to make one or two less bad decisions a game, and you just get what you're getting from Isaiah Jackson and and Davion Mintz, you're going to be okay. Um, But I understand the frustration. I understand, um, and frankly, I understand a Kentucky fan that that says, you know, Calipari gives me the same line every offseason. People say that I'm a Calipari defender, I'm a Calipari homer. Listen, what I think he does every year is really, really, really hard getting a brand new team every season, getting them to figure things out, and especially this year um, in the circumstances that we're in with COVID where he had less practice time, no exhibitions, no scrimmages, no teams against bad, uh, no games against bad teams. So I do think like it, it is legitimately tough what he is doing. What I would also say on the flip side is, I understand a Kentucky fan that's like, dude, every year we have to deal with this. Well, you know, they're 18, they're 19. Like, at some point, like, like, like we got to come into a season ready to go. So I understand the frustration. I, I, I understand the anger, frankly, um, because this was a winnable game. This was not Kansas just going lights out. Like, like I would argue Richmond played much better than Kansas did uh, in their matchup with Kentucky. And so I understand a Kentucky fan's frustration. I guess all I would say is that that most of this is fixable. You can't shoot 9% from three for the entire season. If you just shoot 20% instead of 9%, all of a sudden 
um, you know, we're talking about a team that probably wins these games and is going to win a lot of other ones. And then I just think it's about working through the late game jitters. You got to be able to run offense. You got to have confidence in what you're doing, and you got to just, you know, just just you can't freeze in those big moments the way that they have. I know it's cliche. Calipari will figure it out, but I do understand the frustration tonight. Real quick on Kansas, um, you know, listen. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to sit here and say that they played some incredible, amazing game because I just said three or four times in the Kentucky recap that they didn't. Um, you know, Kansas fan is probably not feeling great at this particular moment about their team either. But you have Gonzaga and Kentucky in the first three games. You obviously play St. Joe's, and you go one and two. Um, and by the way, you beat Kentucky with Marcus Garrett at less than 100%. And really quick, I'm not going to do a long thing on this. I've talked way too much COVID over the past, you know, six months. But what I would say is this. Like, like let's everybody calm down with this Mark, Marcus Garrett shouldn't have played stuff. And, like, I understand a lot of media members that I respect said, you can't risk it. There was a positive at the St. Joe's game. And why is Marcus Garrett playing if he's sick? Like, to me, guys, I've talked about it. We can't pull guys out for symptoms in cold and flu season when somebody has COVID symptoms but they test negative. Marcus Garrett was tested multiple times, and to me, it is no different than the situation with Clemson, Florida State a few weeks ago where I defended Clemson, where all week they're letting this kid practice because he has symptoms but he keeps testing negative. Well, it's the same with Marcus Garrett. I'm not going to freak out. I'm not going to make a big deal about it. This is the world that we live in, and if we pull every kid out that has cold and flu symptoms, we're not going to have a season. Point blank, end of story, whatever. So I don't care that Marcus Garrett was sick. I'm glad that he's safe. I'm glad that he's going to be okay. Um, but, you know, with Kansas, first of all, that's a positive, right? It's probably your most important player is playing at way less than 100%. Um, and two, like like I will say, as disappointing as – disappointing is not the right word. As lackluster probably as the effort is, you know what? You did get a win against Kentucky. That, that, that win will carry weight throughout the, the course of the season – and what's also really interesting to me about Kansas is I think they found sort of an identity. And what's wild about it is it's the exact opposite identity of what Bill Self has done through the years. And for people who don't watch Kansas particularly a lot, um, Kansas has always been known as a team that plays two big guys on the court at once. They used to have the Marquise Mar and Marcus Morris, the Morris twins. Uh, they had Azabuke a few years ago. He was there last year too. But they had Azabuke with some other big guys. And then last year with Azabuke, they kind of went with four guards around Azabuke um, and uh, uh, surrounded him with with four guards along with Azabuke. I'm tripping over my own words here, but you get the point. Four guards, Azabuke. Well, this year, they're not even playing a big guy. They're playing small. They're playing fast. And I think it's actually suited them well. Uh, they were able to keep up with Gonzaga in the first game. Now, obviously, at that point, Marcus Garrett was healthy, so it's a little bit different. But in this game, their most effective lineups came without a single big guy on the court, which I thought was actually really interesting. Um, but it seems to be working. It seems to be effective. And it's just kind of a new wrinkle for Bill Self and for Kansas. Um, and, and I think they're starting to figure out who they are as well, right? Like what I would say very simply is this. I think we focus so much on the teams that are always young, Duke, Kentucky, um, Carolina basically is a whole new team this year. But I think what we have to realize is most teams outside of Baylor, outside of Gonzaga, outside of Creighton, outside of Villanova, basically everybody has a bunch of new guys and a bunch of new roles and everybody's just kind of trying to figure it out on the fly and trying to figure it out without, again, 
exhibitions, scrimmages, um, closed door scrimmages, uh, games against bad teams. You're just jumping right into it and there's no time uh, to kind of figure it out. And so with Kansas, it's just become interesting to me that they're playing basically essentially completely differently than they did the last three, four, five years, uh, you know, or excuse me, two, three, four years ago, let alone 10, 12, 15 years ago when Bill Self first got there. But it seems to work. Um, they seem to have a legitimate star, by the way, in this kid, Jalen Wilson, 23 points. If you didn't see the game or if you don't know his story, frankly, it's kind of an interesting story. He was actually committed to Michigan uh, when John Beeline was there. John Beeline leaves for the NBA. He decommits, signs with Kansas. He was actually their top-ranked recruit that year. Goes down with an injury in the preseason last fall. Doesn't play at all. But he was a former top 50 recruit, and he played like it uh, on Tuesday night. 23 points, two three-pointers. He was the best player on the floor. It wasn't B.J. Boston. It wasn't Terrence Clark. It wasn't Olivier Saar. It was Jalen Wilson. I also thought the kid Christian Braun has played pretty well for them over the last couple games. I know he didn't play great on uh, on on Tuesday he actually had a technical foul for hanging on the rim and chirping at people but I thought he played well and I think Kansas is a really interesting team because like I said they're completely different than they have been but I think they're going to play faster I think they're going to shoot well by the way Ochai Ochai Egbaji played really well as well for Kansas uh, but I think they're an interesting team and I'm not going to overhype them and I'm not going to get too excited about them because again it wasn't a great effort from them. They probably, under normal circumstances, would have lost that game, but they found a way to win, and I think they're starting to figure out who they are. And that's probably, if I had one big takeaway from Kansas, it is that, you know, it's going to take time for everybody, but I think we just assume that Kansas is one of those teams that they always have it figured out. I think they're figuring it out. I think they're going to be a really dangerous team as the season goes on. I don't think they're quite there yet, but I do think they'll get there, and I do think they're an interesting team in what all of a sudden looks like a really good Big Ten or Big 12 with Texas all of a sudden playing well, West Virginia playing well. Uh, Texas Tech is kind of interesting, and of course Baylor, who we will see for the first time on a national stage on Wednesday night. Quickly transition to the other game in the uh, Champions Classic, uh, Michigan State and Duke. Um, first of all, Duke, what was up with Cameron Indoor with no fans in the stands, right? Like, let me just say this. Every time we start a new sport, I'm always like, eh, I don't know if this is going to work, no fans in the stands, and we always figure it out. I remember being in the Fox Sports Radio studios the first day that we had, um, you know, Major League Baseball with no fans in the stands. I was like, this is weird. I'll never get used to it. And then you do. Uh, NFL, never get used to it. And then you do. College football, never get used to it. Then you do. NBA bubble. We get used to all of them. I've even gotten used to college basketball. I got Bill Walton yelling and screaming about Asheville, the, the, the most pet-friendly city in the world or whatever. But Cameron was weird, man. Cameron had this weird echo. You got the Duke players yelling and clapping and cheering on the sidelines and pounding the... It was just bizarre. So that's one. That was like my biggest takeaway. It was like, Cameron's weird. Like, I'm used to the NFL. I'm used to the NBA. I'm used to other college basketball readers. That was weird. As for the game itself, it was frankly not all that different from Kentucky-Kansas. Well, actually it was because Michigan State just kicked the crap out of Duke. Uh, the final score was 75-69, to 69, but if you watch the game, it frankly wasn't anywhere as close to that. Uh, Mich Michigan State was as up by as much as 15 in the second half. Duke made a little run here or there, but it was never really that close after about the first probably 15 minutes or so. Michigan State closed the first half really strong, dominated the second half, 
get a great win. Um, and so kind of like with Kentucky and Kansas, it, it feels the same to me in this sense. Michigan State won. You should probably start with the winner. But to me, the more interesting story is Duke. And I do stories and I do topics on this show. And so let's start with Duke because to me, Duke is just a very fascinating team, kind of from the same perspective as Kentucky, frankly, Kansas as well. I just don't think they're very good right now. And it's really funny. I don't even know if I think Michigan State is very good right now, which we'll get into in a minute. Um, but, you know, it's, it's interesting because I have a buddy that's kind of involved with Michigan State basketball. Um, and I don't want to say he's involved, but he kind of is sort of on the periphery and he knows some of the guys on the team. And I was texting with him uh, throughout the day and he's just like, man, we stink, dude. We're going to get run out of Cameron Indoor. And I was like, dude, have you have you like seen Duke? Like, I'm not saying Duke, like like you guys are great, but but Duke is like really young, really inexperienced. And if you watch the game or if you saw highlights of the game on Saturday against Coppin State, 22 turnovers you beat Coppin State one of the worst teams in college basketball by 10 all of a sudden you're sitting there saying like wait a second I don't know if Duke's that good and so I told him I said dude I'm telling you man I know Michigan State has struggled with Duke traditionally I know Tom Izzo has not had success against Coach K I'm just telling you I don't think Duke's good and sure enough that's exactly what happened and Duke's biggest problem is ironically I think similar to Kentucky's biggest problem is that they got a bunch of dudes right now, and I don't know if anybody really knows who fits in where and what it means and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think the biggest problem with Duke, I've said it all fall. If you read any of my articles, I've said it in my articles. They got a freshman point guard, and this isn't a freshman point guard like Jalen Suggs at Gonzaga. This isn't a freshman point guard like John Wall when he was at Kentucky or um, you know, whomever. I'm trying to think of other great freshman point guards in college basketball. He's a kid named Jeremy Roach. I think he's going to be good, but he was a, a fringe five-star guy. Um, and you look at him, you look at the fact that the other point guard is a fourth-year senior who, you know, has been a role player his whole career, and I think that's where the problems start. I think it's where the problems start is what I said a minute ago is that Duke just frankly has a bunch of guys, and I don't know how they all fit together. And I do think you could say that kind of every year, but I think in years past, the star power was so great that it didn't matter. And so what do I mean by that? Well, two years ago, you had Zion and RJ. And Zion and RJ has fixed everything, right? Like, like fixed everything on defense, fixed everything on offense, created second chance points, whatever. But then last year, you also had Trey Jones, who was, you know, an NBA draft pick, just a veteran savvy point guard. I know he was only a sophomore, but he was a veteran. He was the ACC Player of the Year. Everything ran through him. He was confident. He was comfortable. He knew what he was doing. And I think he masked a lot of the problems that Duke had. Well, this year, you got a freshman point guard. And then you kind of look around the rest of the roster, and you're like, I don't really know about the rest of these guys. You have, at the very least, freshmen in new roles, no different than Kentucky. But then you also, even your returning players, you're asking them to do things that they haven't done before. Uh, Matt Hurt is back. Uh, Basically, was a, a role player, fourth leading scorer last year, whatever. Now you expect him to average like 18 a game. I don't know if he's that guy. Uh, Wendell Moore, sophomore, averaged seven points a game last year, injury plagued. Now you're asking him to be a star. I don't know if he's that guy. Jalen Johnson, freshman, really good. But is he ready to step into that role as star of the team from day one? He isn't Zion. He isn't Cam Reddish. He isn't RJ. And so if he's not those guys, is he ready for that moment? They got another freshman named DJ Stewart, who I think is going to be good, but he's kind of a two, three, not even a two. He's probably a three or four year college player. Is he ready? And so when I look at Duke, 
I think the reality remains they got a bunch of dudes that like I don't think even the coaching staff really knows how to put all these guys together, how they all fit together. And the bigger question becomes, can the guys that you need to be stars, can they really be stars in the ACC? Can Matt Hurt really be a first-team All-ACC guy? Can Wendell Moore really be a first-team All-ACC guy? And then furthermore, beyond that, can you get consistent play out of your point guard? It's Kentucky's problem right now. To a degree, it's Kansas's problem right now. They don't have a traditional point guard. Um, and it's Duke's problem right now. If you watched them, there was just no symmetry, no rhythm, no nothing. And so as we get into Michigan State in a minute, what I would just say is, again, I'm not positive if Duke is that, if, if Michigan State was that good or if Duke was just that bad. I really do think it was kind of the latter. You look at this game, and it wasn't all that different from the Kentucky game. 5 of 23 from 3 from Duke, uh, 12 turnovers, 8 assists. Like, when you have a minus assist to turnover ratio, you're really going to struggle. And so with Duke, I just think it'll be really interesting because I think you're asking a lot of guys that have never been put in these kind of roles to now be in these kinds of roles. Um, and, I, and I just don't know what to expect from them. The good thing is that I do think that they have a pretty manageable schedule going on. They don't actually leave Durham. They don't actually leave Durham until the start of ACC play. They do have one big game at home, Illinois, in the Big Ten ACC Challenge. Illinois got a bunch of grown men on that team, though, and they got guys that know their roles and know what they're doing, and I'm just not sold that Duke is there yet. Uh, and when I look at Duke in the bigger picture of the ACC, I kind of see a team that I don't think they're better than Virginia, even though Virginia just lost. I don't think they're better than Florida State. I don't think they're better than Louisville, who I was quietly impressed by on Tuesday against Western Kentucky. We'll get to them in a minute. Um, yeah, I, I, I think Duke's the fourth, fifth best team, and I think they're fine. I think they got you know a couple guys that'll get a cup of coffee in the NBA, and Jalen Johnson's pretty good. I don't think this is a very good Duke team, though. We will see. By the way, I didn't even mention North Carolina, who I think is probably better than them as well. But I've been proven wrong on Duke before, but I just I don't see the, this group of players coming together and doing what they need to do to be a real threat. Real quick on Michigan State, um, I'll be honest, I, I don't know that I can't, it's really funny, right? So sometimes this happens. A team gets a big win on a national stage against another team that we think is good, and everybody freaks out, and oh my God, look at them, they were so dominant. And I, I remember back to last year, Michigan went to the Bahamas, dominated in the Bahamas, beat Gonzaga, beat North Carolina, beat a bunch of good teams. The following week, they come to the Yum Center for Louisville for the ACC Big Ten Challenge, and Louisville beats them. And everybody freaks out, Louisville, they're so good. And I was kind of like, is Louisville that good, or was Michigan State, was Michigan just really bad? And of course, Louisville fans got mad at me, and it was a whole big thing. But I bring it up because these games happen sometimes, where it's a big national stage, everybody's watching, one team is really bad, so by default, the team that wins looks good. But I'm just not sold that Michigan State is that team. I'm not saying they're bad. Like, I think they're definitely a top 15 type team. And when I look at them, the one thing that I did notice about them, they just got a bunch of dudes that have played a lot of college basketball. And I think especially going into an arena with no fans, I think once they uh, dealt with the initial wave of, of, of issues at, 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 at Duke, it wasn't really a problem, right? They, they took that initial wave, they took that initial punch, and it just rolled off their shoulders and it was fine. And if you look at their roster, like they got dudes that have been there before. Um, Aaron Henry, third-year junior. That was the guy all those years ago that Tom Izzo was yelling at on the sidelines in the NCAA tournament, made a big deal about it. That was him. 
Well, guess what? He's a junior now. Uh, Josh Langford's back for his millionth year of college. And in all seriousness, I'm glad he's healthy. Missed the last year and a half with a foot injury. So first and foremost, I'm just going to say I'm really happy that he is back looking uh, just back on the court period and hopefully going to play well by the end of the year. They got a kid, Joey Hauser, who transferred from Marquette, played three years there. They got Thomas Kithier, who's been in the program, Foster Lawyer, who's been in the program. And they got Rocket Watts, who basically was Cassius Winston's number two guy last year, who's now basically the point guard. He was their leading scorer on Tuesday night with 20 points uh, against Duke. And so with Michigan State, like, I don't want to do like a crazy overreaction because they crushed Duke in the same way that I'm not doing a crazy re- overreaction to Kansas because they beat Kentucky. I think Michigan State's going to be good. I do worry about their point guard play. I do worry, do they have that traditional point guard, or is this kid Rocket Watts more of a two guard that's going to be forced into the point guard role? I think we're going to find out. I think it's going to be really interesting, and I'm very curious to see, because I do think that's interesting. What's going to separate is Michigan State like a top two, three Big Ten team and a Final Four contender, or are they like 12 to 18 and just good, but not really, really, really a threat? Um, And so, yeah, I thought it was a good win for Michigan State, but I'm not going to go crazy over it because when I look at it, um, I still think when I look at the rest of the Big Ten, I watched a bunch of Illinois. They were really good. I watched a bunch of Iowa. They're really good. Um, Wisconsin is beating the brakes off of everybody. Really good. So with Michigan State, I'm not discrediting the win. They have a bunch of dudes that have played college basketball. I'm just more curious to see how they look in the big picture. A couple more notes from college hoops, and then we will get to college football. Um, one, with college f- basketball, uh, first of all, Maui. Um, Texas, all of a sudden, just looks good. Uh, if you remember, they actually closed really well at the end of last season, um, and they got players, right? Like, like I tweeted it out, but it's true. They finally look like a team that's full of four- and five-star guys. Like, they have guys on this roster that are NBA players, and they're starting to play like it. They're starting to carry themselves like it. I'll be curious to see how they handle North Carolina. North Carolina beats Stanford. Um, it was honestly impossible to take anything away from that game um, because of the fact that the refs were just absolutely terrible, even Bill Walton. Bill Walton, like, got – you guys know how Bill Walton is. He's talking about – uh, Doobie Brothers concerts, he's talking about peyote, he's talking about uh, I like to puff this, I like to do that, I like to get high in the mountains, whatever. Bill Wallen spent the entire North Carolina Stanford game talking about how bad the refereeing was. So you know the refereeing had to be bad if Bill Walton stopped talking about his freaking epic journeys to the Joshua Tree or whatever. So I can't take much out of it, but I will say, North Carolina looks a lot better than they did last year. Freshman point guard Caleb Loves look, looks good. R.J. Davis, a guard who plays off the ball, looks good. And they got some big guys down low with Armando Baycott, uh, Garrison Brooks, uh, and a few other guys. So that's North Carolina. That's Maui. Real quick, do want to give a shout-out to Louisville. I thought Louisville had a nice, solid win against Western Kentucky on Tuesday. Western Kentucky is a really good team. And I'll say this for Louisville, man. Um, they have a transfer named Carleek Jones, who's a transfer from Radford. And in the offseason, I just wasn't sold that that kid could come in and contribute at the ACC level. He's been really, really, really good for that team, for that this program so far this season. And I'll say this for Louisville. Um, I think they're a year away from being really interesting, but they got some young guys that I can really see developing in that program. Freshman Dre Davis had a really good game. There's a kid named J.J. Trainer who I think is going to be really good in about a year from now. 
Uh, Mack is getting in his guys. And, you know, Chris Mack has never been a guy that goes after one-and-dones, that tries to get guys that are going to be gone after a year. I'm not saying one style is right and one style is wrong. I'm just saying Chris Mack has his own style. But I like what I have seen from his young guys. I think Louisville's a team that's probably a little bit better than I thought, and they're going to get better going forward. All right. Let's really quickly talk. Oh, Jimmy V Classic tomorrow. Two great games. Uh, first one, West Virginia-Gonzaga. Gonzaga, they're going to play. There was a positive test. Everybody's testing negative. Unless something happens, I do believe they had to test late Tuesday when I'm recording or early Wednesday, but unless something happens, they're going to play. Really excited to watch them against West Virginia. I think physically uh, West Virginia does create some matchup problems for them. I do think Gonzaga scores too easily uh, to, to, to lose that game, so I do like Gonzaga in that game. Then the late game, Baylor-Illinois. Uh, really fun game, really excited to watch that one. And I will say this, I will be doing the next Aaron Torres pod on Wednesday night after those games. So we will recap those games and then preview the college football weekend ahead. But really good slate of games on on, on, on Thursday, Wednesday with the Jimmy V Classic. Sorry, it's late. I'm, I'm, I'm going to power through this and then we'll get out of here. Really quickly, I did want to talk the college football playoff rankings. You know, I'll be honest, I don't think that there was a huge, crazy takeaway from it. Um, the top seven teams have remained the same from last week. So if you do not know what those rankings are, very simply, Alabama's number one, Notre Dame is number two, Clemson is number three, Ohio State four, Texas A&M five, uh, Florida six, Cincinnati seven. Um, and there's really not much to say, right? There's really not much to say. I, I can't get like super fired up about the rankings. And what you need to know is this. What you need to know is the, the, the fly in the ointment. So the fly in the ointment is two things, right? So I get asked all the time, well, what has to happen for this team to get in, that team to get in, this team to get in? What I'll tell you is this. First of all, I think at this point, Alabama is just about in. Texas A&M and Georgia are both currently ranked in the top 10 of this poll. Alabama beat one of them by 28 and one of them by 17. Um, and so even in theory, if they were to lose to Florida in the SEC championship game, I still think they would be in. But let's assume Alabama wins, and then let's assume Clemson beats Notre Dame. I think those three teams are pretty much locked in, right? You can make the case, certainly, first of all, if Clemson loses, they're out. I don't think they get in with two losses unless something other, some other crazy stuff happens. Uh, but if Clemson wins, if Notre Dame loses and it's not an embarrassing loss, I do think that it will be Alabama, Notre Dame, Clemson, and I do think Ohio State has the inside track for that fourth spot, but it comes back down to what I talked about on last episode. Are they going to be able to get in enough games to qualify to really put themselves in a position to, one, just make the, eight, to make the Big Ten championship game? If one of their last two games is canceled, they will not be eligible for the Big Ten championship game because they need six regular season games to get in. Right now, they've only played four with two left. So if one of them gets canceled, um, there's the possibility that they don't even get into the Big Ten championship game, let alone the playoff. Um, but as far as the playoff picture is concerned, what I would just say is very quickly this. The two big X factors, three big X factors, are first of all this. If Florida upsets Alabama, then that creates chaos, right? Because if Florida upsets Alabama, then Florida's got a good resume, Alabama's got a good resume, and then assuming Notre Dame loses to Clemson, Clemson and Notre Dame are both sitting there at 10-1, and 1. 
uh, Alabama and Florida both sitting there at 10 and 1. And all of a sudden, Ohio State probably would be on the outside looking in at that point. So the first kind of fly in the ointment, assuming nothing crazy happens, by the way. And by the way, I'm all over the place. I apologize. But assuming nothing crazy happens, like we're not talking about, you know, Florida losing to Tennessee this weekend. If everybody takes care of what they're supposed to in the regular season, the big flies in the ointment are if Florida loses to Alabama or Florida beats Alabama, two, if Notre Dame gets crushed by Clemson, because to me, that is an X factor. I think if it's close, I think both will get in. I think everybody understands that Notre Dame had a good win against Clemson, even if Trevor Lawrence wasn't in that first game. But if Clemson in the ACC championship game beats Notre Dame 42 to three, then all of a sudden we'll say, well, was that win that good or was because Trevor Lawrence wasn't there? So that's two. If Florida upsets Alabama, that throws a wrinkle in everything. If Clemson crushes Notre Dame, that throws a wrinkle in everything. And then I think the third thing is, does Ohio State get in enough games? And even if they do, do they look good in them? Because I think that's one of the things that nobody's talking about. Is Ohio State, which I've talked about, because it's what I do. I'm AT, hoodie AT, it's what I do. Um, Ohio State has some real holes. First of all, they've only played four games. The secondary's gotten torn up in a couple of those games, gave up almost 500 yards passing to to Indiana a few weeks ago, gave up a bunch of yards passing to Penn State. Uh, They've struggled in pass protection. Indiana got all sorts of pressure on them. And so to me, that's the interesting thing about Ohio State as well, right? Now, assuming this season plays out, they will get to the Big Ten championship game. But even if they get there, they're going to play a Northwestern team, which isn't very good and isn't very dynamic. I think Northwestern plays real defense. I don't know about their offense. But I only bring it up to very simply say, like, you look at Ohio State, their resume is not going to be overwhelming. And so what Ohio State needs is to absolutely make sure that Alabama beats Florida. And then I think what they, they would also hope for is that Notre Dame beats Clemson and that, of course, Ohio State takes care of things. Even if Notre Dame loses to Clemson, if Alabama wins, they get in. Uh, Texas A&M needs help. They either need Ohio State to lose. They need Notre Dame to beat Clemson for a second time. A lot of Texas A&M fans listen to the show. I love you guys. I'm not saying it can't happen. I am saying uh, you're going to need a little bit of help along the way. Same with Cincinnati fans for what it's worth. And finally, I'd wrap on this. Do you guys see this story, Kirk Herbstreet? Kirk Herbstreet out of nowhere basically saying that that he believes that the possibility exists that, as I just mentioned a minute ago, um, so to backtrack, as I mentioned a minute ago, the Big Ten has this dumb rule in place, which I talked about on Monday's episode, that you need six league games, six regular season games to qualify for their conference championship game. It's a dumb rule. It was always a dumb rule. They didn't come back till October 24th. You don't come back until late. You try to cram all these games in. All of a sudden, a game or two is canceled. You're right on the brink. Well, Ohio State is right on the brink. They've already had two games canceled. If they have one of their final two canceled, they will not be eligible for the Big Ten championship game, even if they have the best record in their division, which is almost guaranteed. And so people in kind of the Twitter verse and all that have kind of gone ahead and kind of poked speculation that maybe Michigan would just opt out of their game with Ohio State. And for people kind of sitting there saying, why would Michigan do that? It would be because, one, Michigan knows they're going to get their brains beat in. But two, because if they do that, it means that Ohio State will not qualify for the Big Ten championship game and would really put their entire season in jeopardy. And so it's been kind of this thing that everyone's kind of talked about and joked about and laughed about. Uh, But then Kirk Herbstreit on Tuesday night basically said that he thinks it could realistically happen. 
His exact quote was, I still think Michigan waves the white flag, potentially avoids playing Ohio State next week, and then they potentially get a game in on the last weekend of the season, which is the 19th. Is that fair? Michigan could opt out basically of that game and keep Ohio State out of the six games to qualify for the championship. That doesn't make sense to me. Uh, And by the way, Kirk Herbstreit then said, which I thought was interesting, that he's talked to coaches who believe that teams are opting out to avoid getting humiliated. Now, I already talked about that with Clemson and Dabo Sweeney, and I hate to say it, but I think I was right because Florida State, if you saw this week, Florida State opted out of their their game against Virginia again on game day this week, and Virginia's coach went off and basically said the ACC needs to rewrite their protocols. We can't be having teams travel to a place uh, you know, travel to a venue to play a game, and then on Saturday morning the game gets canceled. Like, if we're going to get on a plane, we got to play it. Virginia's coach said that, so of course he doesn't get any criticism, but Dabo does. But the broader point was that Herbstreit brought up the point that I brought up uh, on this show a few weeks ago, which is that I do believe that teams are using COVID as an excuse to get out of games they want. Um, I did think Kirk Herbstreit was very interesting that he took it to the next level to say that he believes that Michigan may use COVID to get out of the Ohio State game. And let me just say this. I think it's a great story. I think it makes for a great Twitter narrative. I think it's interesting. I think it's fun. I don't think that part's going to happen. By the way, apparently Kirk Herbstreit, I'm seeing now, clarified his comments, and so he already ran them back. But I'll say this for, for, for Michigan, for Jim Harbaugh. You know, you could criticize Jim Harbaugh for a lot of stuff, and I've talked about him almost every week since the Big Ten season started. The one thing you cannot argue about with Jim Harbaugh, though, is he is a competitor. I truly believe that he goes into all these games believing that he has the better prepared team, ready to win, ready to get Ws. Now, that hasn't been the case this year, but I truly believe that he believes that. Um, This guy is, he has and always will be a competitor. I go back to the preseason. If you remember, I've talked about it a lot on this show. But Jim Harbaugh, when it didn't look like there was going to be a Big Ten season and his players and their parents were protesting on campus, Jim Harbaugh protested alongside him. And he said to the media, we'll be ready to go in two weeks. You get somebody to, you, you give us a game in two weeks, we'll be ready to go. Jim Harbaugh, by the way, if you remember, dating back to when he first got there with all the satellite camps, when everyone thought that he was a lunatic because he was going from one satellite camp to the other, it was all about competition. And so I'll just wrap on this Jim Harbaugh stuff by very simply saying this. He's a flawed coach. You want to argue he's not good. I can't argue it at this point. The team stinks. The team's going in the wrong direction. The one thing he is, though, is a competitor. I don't believe that he is at any point going to duck competition, duck a game with Ohio State. Now, they could get COVID, but I don't believe that he will actively try to avoid Ohio State. Uh, Kirk Herbstreit, I thought the line was really interesting, but of course he has retracted it. But I thought it was at least worth talking about on this show. All right. Uh, I think that's it. I can't believe I just did 50 minutes uh, here at 1 a.m. Eastern time. Pretty sure my neighbors hate me, but YOLO. Got to talk about the Champions Classic, right? Got to talk about college football, right? Got to talk about Kirk Herbstreit, right? (laughs) That's it for today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Hope everybody has a great Wednesday. I will be back on Wednesday night. Uh, Before we get out of here, make sure to please subscribe to the show, iTunes, the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like. If you appreciate me recording at 2 a.m. in the morning, just so you guys have something to listen to on the way to work. Um, But yeah, thank you guys for listening. Uh, Make sure you're subscribed, rate, review, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media. But that is all for today's show. 
I will be back on, on Wednesday night for Thursday talking about the Jimmy V Classic, which is, again, Baylor, Illinois, and West Virginia, Gonzaga. I will also be talking about the college football weekend ahead. I'll be talking about the Maui Invitational Championship game with North Carolina. Uh, so plenty to talk about on next show, but that's all for tonight. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. I hope everybody has a great Wednesday. I will be back tomorrow.